Two weeks ago, I focused upon the historical gap, as I referred to it, that exists between chapters 3 and 4, that we have a time frame between uh, the end of chapter 3, which is around 100 A.D., that reaches all the way up into the present. And as John peers into heaven, he peers into the timeless eternity of God, and so I guarantee you that there are no clocks ticking in this realm where he was peering. But nonetheless, what it does is it begins to fill in a lot of understandings. As we talked about last time, why is there this gap between chapters 3 and 4? And the answer is really kind of twofold. Number one, we talked about how Jesus said that there was going to be a time of the Gentiles. This undisclosed length of time in which God was going to shift his primary focus from speaking and working through Israel, that they would no longer be the center of his prophetic plan, and instead his plan of redemption would focus upon the, the nations, which literally would have translated the Gentiles or the non-Jewish people, that the non-Jewish world was going to be reached with the gospel. Jesus explained when this happened, he said, because in John 1.11, he says, he came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. We might contemplate if the Jews had acknowledged Christ and received him as their Savior, we would have gone right from that moment into the, the tribulation period and right into the millennial reign. And yet, history has kind of taken a strong right turn to reach into the Gentile world. In fact, Jesus said to his own generation in Matthew 21, he said, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation or ethnos, Gentiles, that will bear fruit. And so very clearly, Jesus said that you have the kingdom, it's going to be taken to you and, from you and given to others at least until the time of the end. Now, this has led to a conclusion on the part of many within the church that Israel blew it, God gave up on him, he's moved on to the Gentile world, and Israel no longer is a factor in the plan of God. Yet, importantly, it's the Apostle Paul himself who was really trying to bridge the gap between the Gentile and Jewish world, who said in Romans eleven twenty five, he said, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery. He says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. So he says that during this time where God is going to focus on reaching the world for Christ, the Gentile, non-Jewish world, that there's kind of a, a numbness that would come into Israel, but that time would be fulfilled. In fact, Jesus gave us some very clear indicators of how we would know if that time of the Gentiles was coming to a conclusion. Conclusion? Conclusion. <laughs> Sometimes people write me to correct my pronunciation on words, and I'd love to respond to them saying, I didn't mispronounce it, I just babble sometimes. And so, <clears throat> but Jesus called this period, or we could, I should say, Augustine referred to this as the church age, and Jesus said we would know that that church age or the time of the Gentiles was coming to a close when he said, number one, that Jerusalem would no longer be trampled underfoot by Gentiles. One of the first indicators is that Jerusalem would no longer be a Gentile city, and particularly the Temple Mount. 
But secondly, he said there would be an exponential increase in wickedness. So the word wickedness there literally means lawlessness or basically the rejection of any morality that God says is the standard that we should live by. So it's not surprising when you come into the end times, you'll find people promoting immorality and particularly the extreme of sexual immorality that was previously unthought of, even unimagined. Nobody would have said it's even normal. But as uh, G.K. Chesterton once said, he said, when the unthinkable becomes debatable, it soon becomes acceptable. And so we live in an era of wickedness that is, used to be not debatable. So that it used to be that if a, a group of murderous terrorists were to flow across the border of one country and another and murder 1,400 people by chopping their heads off and burning the babies in their ovens and doing all sorts of atrocious things, literally ripping women's bellies open with their babies in them, and we would have people who would fill the streets and say they're justified. It's an act of self-defense. The unthinkable has become not only debatable but discussable to the point where it's actually acceptable. And that's one of the signs of the end times. The thirdly, it says the gospel, the kingdom will be preached to the whole world. It doesn't say it'll be accepted, but it'll be heard. It'll go to every corner of the world. And then the love of most, he said, will grow cold. And because the word love there is agape, the Greek word for God's love, some have suggested that it's referring to an apostasy within the church, that Christians would become numb to the things that are important to God. And then Zechariah the prophet, last of all, said that Jerusalem would be under siege by the surrounding nations. And it's interesting, that word surrounding, sabib in the Greek or the Hebrew, literally means those who are immediately in proximity. So that when we look at what's called the intifada, the, the resistance against Israel, it's kind of interesting because they're saying, you know, they want to free the occupied territory. Well, Palestine and Gaza have not been occupied by the Jews since 2005. So I don't know what occupied territory they're talking about. It's a lot of political doublespeak, but it really refers to the fact that they want to push Israel off of the territories that they were given in 1948 and completely eliminate their presence in the world. But it also implies that what's coming is that battle of Gog and Magog. And I don't believe we are there yet. If you want to hear my deeper reasonings on that, you can go to my podcast on kenortiz.com. I have a special. It's only $150 a minute this year. No, it's free. It's free. But um, you get a deeper explanation of why I don't think it's quite now, but what we should be looking at. It's certainly forming the dynamics that we should be concerned of. But then and only then did Jesus say the end would come. And the, the beginning of the end is not so much a singular event. In other words, you cross a line and suddenly the end is there. The end is a period of time in itself. It's called a time by the prophets, the, uh, the times of Jacob's troubles. A time in which Israel or Jacob would be facing tremendous hardships and difficulties. And that's really, I think, with the battle of Gog and Magog, there's a transition that happens that we'll get into later talking in chapter 6, where the Antichrist arrives on the world scene and he makes peace with Israel. He makes a covenant with Israel that the Jews rebuild the temple 
And they begin to worship, and then he betrays them and puts his image in the temple and declares himself to be God. The real question for many people is, are we as Christians, born-again believers, are we going to be going through that same journey? And my argument today is that no, we are not. And I'll explain in detail why I don't think that's true. But it basically brings me back to why we do not see the church prominently featured in chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation. Because although there are many non-Jews present in the world during the tribulation, these are people who do not know Christ. I mean, when it talks about the uh, the kings of the Orient, if that's China or some other conglomeration of Asian peoples that come against the Antichrist in the final battle, the battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation period, those people have to come from someplace. And so we know that there are population centers around the world, even though in chapter 6 it tells us at one point one-quarters of the earth's population will be killed by the things that are going on in the earth. But the bottom line is that the primary focus of that seven-year period is not so much to redeem the church or deal with the church at all. In fact, I believe the church again is taken out of the way, but rather it's to finish the work that God promised that it would do with Israel. In fact, in 1126 of Romans, Paul makes this statement. He said, all Israel will be saved. Well, under what conditions? Well, he goes into a very detailed explanation about the future status of Israel. Keep in mind, he's writing to the church in Rome. The Roman church is composed of Jews and of Gentiles. Some Jews have given their life to Christ and become part of the church. But some of them are still resistant to the message. And there's conflict and tension between the Jews and these converts, particularly Jews who have become Christians, There's this conflict going on in the church, and Paul is trying to address that by explaining what the future holds for the Jewish people who at that point were not willing to receive Christ. He said, beginning in chapter 3, he says, what if some did not have faith? What will their lack of faith do? Nullify God's faithfulness? Remember, Paul said, we can deny him, but he cannot deny himself. He goes on to say, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Israel has not stumbled beyond God's ability to redeem them. And again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles, the age of the Gentiles, to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will be their full inclusion bring? And that's when he goes on to say, again, all Israel will be saved. This is why I think we need to understand that the warnings of Matthew 24 and are primarily and were and are directed Not to the church, but to the Jews who will be going through the tribulation. And that tribulation is designed, I believe, to bring them to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. As I become apparent when you read through Revelation. 
For once the gospel message reaches the ends of the earth, the very next event involved is the rebuilding of a tribulation temple in Jerusalem. Now, this is something that is presumed throughout the book of Revelation, but also is very clearly stated. When it talks in chapter 11, it begins by saying, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. There's obviously a temple in Jerusalem. It also says in verse 8 that it's located where our Lord was crucified. And he refers to that Jerusalem as being Sodom and Gomorrah. They, but basically, it's, we're talking about Jerusalem very clearly where Jesus was crucified and there is a temple there. And so it's right in the very middle of the tribulation, a seven-year tribulation at the three-and-a-half-year point. The Antichrist does something, and let me kind of explain the scenario, at least as I understand it, my opinion. Take it for what it's worth because I have been both right and wrong in my lifetime, and I'm not going to tell you which one. But what I see ha happening is a very potential scenario is that following the battle of Gog and Magog, which in some of my other studies I've termed as the death of Islam, because basically you see the massing of Islamic nations along with the northern tribes, which may include Russia, we're not sure. But they invade and, and come into the land and God destroys them. It just literally says that God destroys them. We have all sorts of scenarios of how they're wiped out, but God wipes them out. And this becomes so evident, even in some ways we're hearing stories of it being evident with soldiers in Gaza right now, speaking about how that angels have been saving their lives and intervening in this conflict on their behalf. This was true of almost every military conflict Israel has been in, that many soldiers have come back and said there were divine interventions that they can't explain. God stepping in and doing things that, you know, would have ultimately led to their death, but they were saved. Well, the battle of Gog and Magog is resolved because God does this amazing thing, and I believe it brings a sense of revival to the Jewish people where they begin to honor the God of Israel. I've even seen with some of my friends who didn't usually ever talk this way, but as they send no notices and letters and emails and so forth about what's going on in the conflict, they're using terms that I haven't heard them say before. They're talking about the God of Israel. They're talking about God willing. They're talking about praying. There's this kind of returning to God that we need to look to the God of Israel because that's our only hope in the final end. And that's where it says that the, I think the Antichrist comes on the scene. Some have suggested the Antichrist may all, uh, actually be Jewish based upon some references, but I can't say for certain. But it says this about him in Daniel 9.27, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. One week, and the terminology there is talking about weeks in terms of years, for seven years. He'll make a covenant with Israel for seven years. And what is the covenant going to be? I believe it's going to be the rebuilding of the temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Now, there are all sorts of scenarios out there about where the Temple Mount can be built. There's a group of people called the Temple Faithful who every year take a cornerstone and try to march up to the Temple Mount, and they want to lay this cornerstone up on the Temple Mount, and the Israeli police stop them because they know it will only lead to a riot. In fact, oftentimes it does lead to a riot. 
because there's a whole bunch of Muslims who don't want, don't want to see this happen. And there's also the conversations of where was the temple originally? Maybe it was built to the north so that we can build the temple next to the Dome of Rock, which is kind of ironic because the Muslims would never put up with that and the Jews would not put up with it. But they come up with this idea. Or it could be built to the south where the, the mosque of, Om, uh, the dome of, the, um, the mosque of uh, Omar is located. Not the mosque of Omar. Anyway, where the other mosque is located. <coughs> it's, it's for me. I'll get it later. Uh, the other... And then, you know, that's another, they, they, these are conjectures, but the strongest evidence, photographically, in other words, is that the Dome of the Rock is built right on top of where the, Ark of the, where the uh, temple was built. You can even see, I've seen ancient photographs where you can actually see the ramp that leads up to where the Ark of the Covenant was. You can see a two and a half by three foot cut in the stone where the Ark of the Covenant was seated, and on and on it goes. And so bottom line is that building has to be relocated. Now, I know some great moving companies who are willing to do it. But, but you know, this is pretty uh, stuff. And if there's a powerful Muslim force or political force in the world, you know it could never happen. But something happens. This individual who will become the most powerful, influential man upon the planet um, will probably make a covenant, and part of that covenant is to rebuild the temple on that location. But then it says halfway into that week, three and a half years into the tribulation period, and I know in saying that some of you are thinking, well, isn't the tribulation this place of incredible chaos and violence and so forth? Yes and no. The first three and a half years, it says the Antichrist, and Daniel says he destroys wonderfully. It's about wars and conflicts and debates, but it's not about everything falling apart. That comes at the middle of the tribulation. That's why the last three and a half years of the tribulation are called the Great Tribulation. That's the period Jesus said, if it was possible there, if God didn't stop it, there would be no life left upon the earth. It's when God pours out the seven last plagues upon the earth and things on planet earth become, we might say, a total full-blown existential ecological disaster, uh, and not because people failed to drive electric cars. <laughs> but it says in Daniel that he'll put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offerings, and on the wings of abominations will come the one who makes desolate. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul explains what this desolation, abomination that makes desolate is, when he writes in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, he says, the Antichrist, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So the temple is built, the Jews begin the process of renewing their ancient worship, and he stops it and basically, he has an image of himself. Remember, the holiest holies had no image in it. An image of himself. And he said, I am God. Satan is God. And you will worship me. And the evidence of that, you will receive a mark either in your forehead or your hand, which is the mark, number of a man. And you can no longer buy and sell unless you do. All of this happens at the middle, right at the three and a half year moment. And as we get into studying Revelation, we should be getting in there in probably about three years. We'll see how all of this unfolds in a very rapid and significant way. 
But in, it is regarding this event that Jesus refers to when he tells those who are in Jerusalem and in Judea, not Spokane, not Minneapolis. He says, when you see standing in the holy place, that's in the temple, the abomination that causes desolation. It's so abominable that it invites judgment and desolation upon the earth. Then he says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. It's very specific to the Jewish people, people who are in Judea. He says, you need to get out of town because God's judgment is going to begin to fall. Now, again, I believe that prior to this, the church is already gone. And again, God's focus is on fulfilling his promise to Israel. And we'll, we'll deal, in, deal with the church next week as we continue on into chapter 4. Because I, as I've said before, I think it's clearly evident that we are around the throne. We are not down here on earth. Now, there are those who argue that we shouldn't be so literal in our reading of the text because the Jewish nation has been rejected by God because they rejected Jesus. Um, a lot of anti-Semitism throughout medieval times up into the present was based upon a theology that was put forth by the Roman church that they had been cursed by God and rejected. Instead, what they say or their argument is the church is now the new Israel and has subsumed all the promises that God gave to the patriarchs in the Old Testament. Here's the problem I have with that view. It was Paul who specifically wrote in context, talking about Israel, when he said again in Romans eleven twenty nine, 29, God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Irrevocable means it can't be changed. It's a gift, a charisma, which means a charisma means being given a favorite position or blessing by God, not based upon your behavior, not based upon what you've done or haven't done. It is an unconditional promise. So that when we talk about Christ saving us, we are saved unconditionally. Why? Because there's nothing that I am capable of doing that meets even the most basic condition for salvation. It is a gift of God. It is given to me by grace. It's all of God. It's really none of me. In fact, you get saved when you come to God and say, Lord, I can't save myself. My sins disqualify me eternally. I am, as Hillary said, I am a deplorable, you know, as Disney said, I'm a despicable. You know, I, God, as Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And Paul answers his own question by saying, I thank God through Jesus Christ. That Christ saves me unconditionally. And the most confusing thing for young Christians is, how do I serve a God who has no conditions for my salvation? There's got to be something I can do. And so you try and you try and you try and you blow it and you blow it and you blow it. You find yourself falling short of the glory of God on a regular basis. And at some point it begins to click in your brain. I'm saved by grace, not by my works. My sins are forgiven because his blood was shed for all time and eternity for the sins of mankind. 
Now, some people struggle with that. They're saying, well, aren't you giving people permission to sin? All I can say is sin is its own reward. <laughs> you learn very quickly when you've discovered the grace of God how much more wonderful it is to be obedient than it is to be a disobedient. It's obedience that brings you to that place of intimacy with God, the joy of God, the peace of God, the forgiveness. It frees you from the resentments and the bitternesses and the hostilities and all the things that drive people that we see all over the world. When I see these terrorists going crazy, I think these are the most miserable, horrible, angry, bitter, resentful people on the planet because all they can do to feed the thing inside of them is to destroy. Christ comes and he feels that brokenness. He comes and he says, I don't care what you've done, I've forgiven you. I don't care how far you drifted, I'm bringing you home to me. One of my favorite passages in, in Luke 15 where he talks about the, the, uh, uh, the prodigal son. But before he gets to that story, he talks about how a, a man lost a sheep and he leaves the 99 and he goes back and he finds it and he brings it back. And when he finds that sheep, he calls all his friends together and says, and he rejoices and he says, just like they do in heaven. And again, he says in, in the woman who lost the coin and she looks for it and finds it and she brings it back and she's so thrilled, she throws a party and celebrates and he says, just as it is in heaven because he says, God rejoices over one sinner that comes to repentance more than 99 that don't need to. But what really struck me was the only time in the Bible it tells us that God rejoices over people coming to repentance is in these passages when people say, I surrender, Lord, to you. I give you my life. I ask Jesus into my heart. Because see, God has given you something. He's given you a free will. He's given you a choice. You can say no to God, which is kind of frightening to think about it. But you and I do it more often than we not. You know, I mean, I, I'm driving down the road and, and I, I've got a problem with my speedometer. It keeps on going higher than it's legally allowed. And then I hear this voice saying, you know, you need to slow down. And I said, honey, let me drive. <laughs> you know, the Holy Spirit can speak to you in many ways. <laughs> but in all seriousness, we understand that there is this guiding hand of God in our life. And the whole relationship of a Christian is learning how to repent and to live within the context of repentance. Lord, forgive me for my sins. Wash me and make me clean. And I thought it so struck me as I was reading those passages that every time somebody comes to the Lord and says, God, I ask you to forgive me. Rather than what we would experience in the human world where people said, you did what? I can't believe you. I'm taking your privileges away. You're in such trouble. We got a place that we're gonna lock you up forever and you're never gonna see the light of day ever again because you're such a bad person. And God says, I forgive you. Let's just go on like it never happened. <laughs> and it, it's so incomprehensible to our minds that God would just say, confess your sins and I'll forgive you your sins. That we feel guilty about being forgiven. When God says, I died on the cross so that you would be forgiven. This is a common struggle. I know you struggle with it. We all struggle with it. We see ourselves doing things. And we say, oh God, search my heart and see if there's any wicked way in me. And then he says, oh, that's easy. 
And you go, oh, uh, did you have to do it right away? <laughs> but it's that understanding of this incredible grace of God. So when somebody says, well, God has rejected the Jews because they rejected him, Paul comes back and says, well, you don't understand grace. You don't understand the irrevocable, unchangeable, inalterable will of God. It was he unconditionally saved Abraham and he unconditionally saves you and me, and he unconditionally saves all of Israel. In fact, Paul could say this based upon numerous unequivocal Old Testament promises that God made to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, there are so many, I'm going to bore you by reading them all to you. But just think about these. In Deuteronomy 7, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasure position, possession. And then he goes on in the passage. You can read it yourself in Deuteronomy 7. He says, I didn't pick you because you're the best or the biggest or the best looking. In fact, I picked you because you're the worst, you're the weakest, you're kind of the ugliest. I chose you because I determined that I would take the least to show that I can take the least and I can make the least the greatest. You see, God delights in finding people like you and me who, you know, I often share that before I became a Christian, I had these three things going for me. I was young, I was stupid, and I had absolutely no future. I gave that all up for Jesus, right? But that's simply how God works. When, when we do something that stands out and we want to begin taking credit for it, it's not long before God teaches us that we shouldn't. Because as Paul would say, I am what I am by the grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. It's, it's not the Lord alone, Lord. It, it's, it's, it's the Lord it's who, who doing it. It's not me. And if it's good, it's God. And when it's bad, that's me. In Psalm 94, he said, for the Lord will not reject his people, he will never forsake his inheritance. Isaiah 54, 10, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord. In Psalm 130, he says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love. In other words, it never stops. And Jeremiah 31, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with an unfailing kindness. And Isaiah 49, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. I mean, it's a pretty profound statement. I have engraved you in the palms of my hands so that I will never forget you. Numbers 23, he says, God is not human that he should lie. Not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Or Psalm 105, he remembers his covenant forever. The promise he made for a thousand generations. You know how long a thousand generations is? By the smallest estimate, it's 25,000 years. 
So, you know, I don't think we've gotten there yet. In Jeremiah 31, 35, he says, this is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. Now the critic says, well, they're destroyed by the Romans, scattered for nearly 1,800 years, and so they ceased being a nation. The answer is in the word nation. It's the word ethnos, a people. And Jews throughout history have always understood that they were the Jews. They were God's chosen people. They have never ceased to be a nation by his definition, the biblical definition of what is a nationality. You see, all of which makes our current cultural moment with this rise of anti-Semitism, that is Jewish hatred, so very significant. See, without doubt, Israel has been a consistently hated people unlike any other from ancient times. In fact, Ezekiel made the comment twice in his prophecy in chapter 33 and chapter 35. He said, and there's an ancient hostility that has sought to destroy Judah. And we see it especially in the, in the Middle East. Ishmael hated Isaac. Esau hated Jacob. And their descendants continue to do so. The Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Spanish, the Vatican, the Germans, <laughs> Russia, and now even the Muslim world have sought the genocidal eradication of the Jewish people. And guess what? They have failed every time and will continue to do so. So that when we look at what Hamas has done, or Hezbollah, or Islamic Jihad, or even more importantly, what Iran says, that we realize that anti-Semitism is a, as relentless and pernicious as it is senseless. On the surface, it's based purely on envy. A friend was asking this question. He said his son, who isn't a Christian, was saying to him, what's the big deal with Israel? Why is everybody worrying about Israel? And I said, exactly. It makes no sense that the world would be so verklempt and bothered other than the fact that the prophet Zechariah said in chapter 12, in the last days, I will make them a troubling stone in the midst of the nation. This little tiny country the size of New Jersey is the center of world concern and chaos. The whole world is verklempt about what Israel is doing and what they're all about. And as they militate themselves against Israel, they verify the very thing God said would be the case in the end times. But envy is what we see, on the, at least on the surface. It was Mark Twain in 1897 in his book, Innocence Abroad, who made this interesting observation at that time about the Jews. He says, if the statistics are right, the Jews constitute but one quarter of one percent of the human race. It suggests a nebulous puff of stardust lost in the blaze of the Milky Way. 
Properly, the Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of, has always been heard of. He is as prominent on the planet as any other people, and his importance is extravagantly out of proportion to the smallness of his bulk. His contributions to the world are very out of proportion to the weakness of his numbers. And then further on, he, had, he said, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and the Persians rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, and then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greeks and the Romans followed and made a vast noise, and they were gone. Other people have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out. And they sit in twilight now and have vanished. The Jew saw them all, survived them all, and is now what he has always been, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energy, no dulling of his alert mind. Alert but aggressive mind. And then he says, all things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he will remain. What is the secret of his immortality? And I would suggest that the answer to that question is found in the words of an ancient rabbi by the name of Gamaliel when the apostles were brought up before the Sanhedrin. And he said, we need to be careful that we don't end up finding ourselves fighting against God. If this thing, he says, is not of God, it will die off all on its own. But if it is of God we won't be able to defeat it. Envy is what I see. I see it in the fact that Israel is a rebuke to the Islamic system. Islam says it's the greatest civilization on the planet. Islam says it will eventually rule and conquer the rest of the world. They often say things like, first we'll get rid of the Saturday people, and then we'll take care of the Sunday people. That Islam has dedicated to jihad, which means struggle, but struggle not only for your own personal commitment to Islam, but also the struggle against those who resist Islam. That Islam needs to be in control of every territory which it once controlled, which by the way controls, involves parts of Italy, Spain, <laughs> and most of North Africa and so forth. They need to be in control of all of those areas. And the jihad did not stop at the borders of Israel. It will reach into the Mediterranean and beyond because that is what they're called to. Greece should be part of the Islamic empire once again. That's what jihad means. There's no end to it. They're not going to be give us our piece of property and we'll be happy. There's no two-state solution. They've rejected that over again and don't have any interest. It is the driving passion to be in power and control. And when you have a country like Israel, which barely existed and was immediately attacked the day they became a nation and has consistently been attacked and invaded over and over again and keeps on winning and beating the snot out of them, and we see them expanding to where they have the sixth most powerful military on the planet. And they're unable to drive them from the, into the sea. It was Yasser Arafat said, we'll, we'll make them drink salt water, seawater. 
and they developed the most sophisticated desalinization system in the world so that 80% of their water is the desalinized water. I mean, you open the pap in Israel and drink it, you're drinking <laughs> desalinated seawater. So he was kind of right, and he's also kind of dead. But there's something that's much further down below the surface. The advantages and the importance of Israel, even to the point this little country has their currency is traded on the international currency exchange. There's only about a half a dozen currencies, but theirs is so strong and so prominent. How did they get to this place? And God says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. It's a really simple formula. Because below this surface of envy, and envy is always one of the favorite tools of Satan to get us crosswise and moving in the wrong direction. Below this envy is something much more diabolical. It's pure Satanism. Satan hates the Jewish people as do all the religious and the political systems that serve Satan's agenda. As the world turns its back on Christ and welcomes the opening of what I can simply say are the, just the portals of hell, we're going to find that that hatred towards the Jewish people is only going to continue to grow. I think many people are shocked to see the anti-Semitic pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas demonstrations in universities and cities around the country and saying, where did this come from? How did this start? As if Satan needs time to develop an organization. <laughs> as we invite darkness into our culture, as we give ourselves more and more to those things that God says thou shalt not, Satan has become active and involved and engaged. He's filling these people's minds. And if you listen to what they have to say when they're interviewed, you realize that he must be filling their mind because there clearly is nothing else in there. You could take all the gals in the view and put their brains together and you wouldn't fill a thimble. I mean, I've never seen such a collective group of ignorance in my life. And I, I shouldn't say that because I like thimbles. But the answer is the secret of its immortality, which is no secret. Because whether people like it or not, they're God's chosen people created and chosen to fulfill a purpose in his design. And I wouldn't even begin to say I completely understand what that purpose is, but God often works in people like you and me, and others may look at us and say, what's the deal with that guy, that gal? Nobody has a good answer if God just simply chooses who he uses. But at the end of the day, if God is using somebody because he has chosen them, then it's not my place to sit back and say, well, that's not fair. I was so moved by the testimony of Corey Tenboom about when her father decided to take Jews into their home and hide them as the Nazis were going around Amsterdam arresting them and sending them off to concentration camps. And she asked her father, why are we doing this? And he simply said to her, because God has declared that they are the apple of his eye. Zechariah writes, whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye and I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them and they will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. 
Because as he promised Abraham from the beginning, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And isn't that what's happened throughout history, whether it be Egypt or Greece or Spain or Rome, the Vatican, Germany, Russia, all those who are under the bondage of Islam, which is not a religion of peace, but a religion of death. Will it also be the fate of the United States if we too turn our back on Israel and allow anti-Semitism to go unchecked? The parallels about what are happening in our streets to that which happened in the streets of Germany are frightening. The same rhetoric, the same anger, the same attacks, the same persecutions, the same devil, and the same group of people who are demonically and diabolically willing to be compliant in their pursuit for power and wealth. These people who love death. You see, what we're watching is coming straight out of the pits of hell, being fulfilled by these mindless widgets in the streets who are his minions, Satan's minions. But I think it's important to know that Jesus said that his second coming, not only would he judge individuals for their sins, but nations will be judged for their treatment of the Jews. In Matthew 25, a passage that is often misapplied and misunderstood, Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. I believe he's talking about the millennial kingdom. And then he explains why. He says, I was hungry and I was thirsty. I was a stranger. I was naked and sick and imprisoned. You clothed me, you looked after me, you came to visit me. And they'll ask, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give something to drink? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Who were Jesus' brothers? The Jews. Someone once said, if modesty hadn't made people who painted the pictures of the crucifixion to put a loincloth across his private parts, they would have clearly seen that he was a Jew because he was circumcised. Then he goes on in verse 41, he says, and then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. All of this really brings me back to where I began reading this morning. I know, I too sometimes say, how did I start there and get here?
But as Jesus moves the narrative of Revelation from the sin and the madness of the world of men with all of their evil and all of their hatred and miscreant behavior, he suddenly opens a door in heaven that allows John and his readers like you and me to see things not just simply as they are or not to simply see them as they have always been or even necessarily how they will be, but he allows us to see how things are right at this moment in heaven. John says, there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. The world may be in a state of chaos and disorder. It always has been. It's just been better or worse, or we've been more aware or less aware. Now we're blessed with 24-hour media and uh, TikTok. Um, so that somebody said to me, well, the reason I, I'm on TikTok is because the news is information is, is immediate. I said, does it bother you whether it's accurate or not? <laughs> I, mean, I know everything that they're telling me is going on. So I'm an informed person, right? But John takes us into the very center of the entire universe, both the visible and the invisible. He takes us to the very center of all things, which is God who is on his throne. And the thing that strikes you is he's in control. They cry out at the end of the chapter that he has all power, that he created all things and all things exist and consist by his will. There's nothing that's going on in the planet that God doesn't have ultimate control. In fact, he says through the prophets, did I not create evil? How did God create evil? By allowing the absence of good. When there's the absence of good, evil will express itself because that is the nature of not only the enemy, but also you and me. It is the Holy Spirit that calls us to insert good into the evil that's in the world. And that's many ways how we make a difference. But you see, people oftentimes become compliant. They become surrendered. They become desensitized. <laughs> As I was bemoaning about the state of Ohio, which now has made abortion a constitutional right in the state of Ohio. And as I was going through looking at the, uh, the voting demographics, it was interesting that Christians didn't vote. 50% aren't ever registered. And then the other 50%, only half of them have ever voted or vote occasionally, maybe in a national election, but they don't bother locally. I mean, kudos to you. We made some election things very prominent, at least locally in our situation, our school, and, and suddenly we flipped the school board in Mead District, so it's filled with conservatives. <laughs> Bless those people for the courage of running for those positions, and, and may we be blessed by seeing a change in the kind of priorities and decisions that are made. 
But I look around the rest of the city and I realize that very few Christians even turned out to vote. And so it changes all the dynamics from the mayor to the chief of police to, I mean, it just begins to, you know how they say in the military that, you know, that um, you never want to put a latrine on a, on a top of a hill because it, it just floats downhill. You know, the consequences of elections are downhill as we, we're seeing with, uh, you know, brilliant things like binomics and things like that that apparently are really making things good. So it's, you know, it's one of those things that as Christians, we're called to be engaged, we're called to be involved, we're called to, to care and to make a difference by the decisions we make. And I, I don't want to lecture you guys. You guys are more than faithful. I just am increasingly always blessed by just the generosity and the engagement that you show, the way that you serve in so many areas. And um, I, I'm honored and, and humbled by that fact because I know the only reason you do it is because you really are serious about walking with Jesus and living out your faith. But we need to pray that that would spread through our communities, across the nation. Because there's only one explanation of why our country's positions of leadership are being filled by people that are so um, corrupt. Morally corrupt, economically, financially corrupt. I mean, they're just corrupt. We know it's rampant. It runs through. And the reason is because Christians have removed themselves from engagement. But when they do, they can make a difference. And the place where we've removed ourselves and left ourselves most vulnerable is we don't pray. Face it, we don't pray. We just expect that, you know, it'll go on. We may pray for a parking space when we're doing Christmas shopping, but we don't pray. We don't pray that God would forgive us our sins and have mercy upon our nation that he would remove wicked men and women from powers of position. He would replace them with people who fear God. At least that's what I pray all the, every day, <laughs> over and over. Because I know that the only thing that can fix what's wrong with this place is prayer. Binding the power of the evil one, stopping the wickedness, closing the portals of darkness that wickedness has opened and beginning to see, ask God to bring a great awakening upon this nation. We're not prisoners of history, as people sometimes say. We are people who have a choice. And he says, if my people will humble themselves and pray, I will, and, and confess their sins, I will forgive them and I will heal their land. There's a solution. But we have to begin by confessing. We have to take corporate responsibility for the sins of our nation. What does that mean? We pray like Daniel did in Daniel 9. He says, Lord, our fathers turned their backs on you. And that's why we find ourselves in this situation. Lord, have mercy upon us and restore us. Daniel prayed that prayer and you know what happened? A migration back to Judah came. The king said, go and rebuild the city. Here's the money to rebuild the temple. And suddenly there was this mass migration 
of 50,000 people that went back to Judah, which was a, basically a desolate land, to rebuild a nation. Why? Because one godly man said, God, you said in your word that you would restore if we humble ourselves. I'm humbling myself and asking you, God, change this dynamic. So our fate is not fixed. We can make a difference if we pray. If we humble ourselves. Because here's the thing that just blows my mind all the time. The God who in the very beginning said, let there be light, and suddenly all of this stuff started happening, is the same one that I say, Father, save this nation. The same God who created the universe is the same God who can fix what's wrong with us as a nation. We just have to ask him. You have not because you ask not. So I'm asking, serve in children's ministry, serve in the coffee bar, <laughs> serve as an usher, a greeter, serve in any thousands of one ways that you can think of, but also pray that God would move. Your little wimpish prayer that you think is not significant has a power to change the world if we just pray.